Welcome to the Relentless Forward Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Jungling, and I've got some uh, some news to share with you. So as you may know, uh, I have had uh, various roles at a company called Stinky Feet Athletics over the last roughly six years. And while I have really thoroughly enjoyed my time there, and I've met hundreds of amazing people, I've made lifelong friends, and I've been able to and honored to help... Uh, probably hundreds of people achieve their fitness goals, their running goals. Um, but I have decided to step away from that and take a new direction in my life. So uh, I will remain extremely active in the local and even more so in the regional uh, running and fitness communities. Um, and I ask you to stay tuned for an announcement of what exactly that will entail. Uh, there are some really exciting things coming that will that, I, that will help me spread my love for fitness, for motivation, uh, for inspiring people, for fighting cancer, and for coaching um, that to, to areas other than just the part of the country where I live. Um, so stay tuned. I've got some big stuff planned. Um, keep, uh, keep listening to the podcast and you'll probably hear something soon. Um, my guest today is one of the most interesting people and amazing people that uh, you'll ever hear. His name is Chris Warner. Uh, when I sat down to uh, make a list of the first the people I really wanted to have on this podcast when I first started it, um, Chris Warner was right at the top of the list. And it's taken me a couple months to catch up with Chris. He's a busy guy. But he came on the show today and is just fascinating. Um, Chris is a world-class mountaineer who, as of just a few years ago, was one of only nine Americans who have summited both Everest and K2. I think maybe that number is now 12. Um, if you don't know, Everest and K2 are the two tallest mountains in the world. K2 is known as the Savage Mountain, and only about 300 people have ever summited K2, and 84 people have died trying, which means the success rate is less than you know, it's about 30% or your chance of dying is about 30% on that mountain. Amazingly, he filmed an Emmy nominated documentary while climbing the mountain. He's got some incredible stories to tell. Chris is also an incredibly successful entrepreneur and leadership expert. He speaks to Fortune 100 companies across the country teaching leadership um, on teams where failure is really not an option. So I will say this if you are one of those people, who rarely listens to an entire podcast, I believe this episode will be the exception. Um, it's a little longer podcast than normal. I really wanted to keep going, but I uh, had to let Chris go at some point. Um, Chris's stories are amazing. They're intense. They're educational. Uh, if you don't learn anything that will help you in your life or relationships or business, you will no doubt still be entertained and fascinated by uh, Chris's tales from his uh his expeditions into the mountains. So uh, thanks for listening to the podcast and supporting it. I'd like to ask you to subscribe um, on iTunes or on Podbean. Um, rate the podcast if you would, if you like it. If you don't like it, you know, just keep that rating to yourself. But um, without further ado, here is Chris Warner. Enjoy. I'm sitting here with Chris Warner. Chris, thanks for being on the show. Oh, I'm super excited, Jeremy. It's great to spend time with you. We had some uh, technical difficulties getting started this morning, so hopefully the sound will still be okay. But uh, so, Chris, give uh, give everybody a little background on on you, if you would. Some of your some of the things you focus on in life. Well, Jeremy, you and I met 
through mountaineering when we were on a Kilimanjaro expedition. And so mountaineering is a part of my life. I've uh, led about 200 international expeditions, so everywhere from guiding people up Mount Everest to Kilimanjaro to all sorts of other crazy places. But that's just one piece of who I am. So there's the mountaineer, there's the entrepreneur. I started a business uh, a million years ago with $592, and today we have uh, six or 700 employees. We serve over a million customers, and the business is growing like crazy. Um, and then I, um, and then I'm an educator. So I started uh, my first real career was taking people out in the woods on expeditions, or you know, trips, just to try to help them learn about themselves through putting them in this kind of extreme, uh, unique environment. And what I loved about that was teaching people how to be the very best versions of themselves. So I've been an educator ever since, whether it's teaching in a formal setting, like literally in a school, or teaching the outdoors, or just kind of guiding, uh, you know, employees through their own personal development. So climber, educator, and entrepreneur are the three buckets that I find myself sitting in. And it's interesting you say that because when we met um, just prior to starting our expedition on Kilimanjaro, I was, you know, heading into that, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't really know you that well at, well at all. And so it was interesting when we sat down beforehand and how you talked about um, the, the values that we needed as a team to achieve our goal. And I had never really thought of it that way. I'd always thought of it as kind of just a physical challenge and maybe some camaraderie. Um, but uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, well, let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about Survivor Summit where we met. And, you know, how did you get involved with that and, and why did that uh, strike fancy? Well, we, there was a guy named Mike King. And so Mike King was really the emphasis or the, the kind of the, the, the core of the Survivor Summit with his brothers and some other friends. But uh, Mike had been a, a, an intern at Livestrong. And he also was a MBA student at the Wharton School of Business. So I was teaching leadership at the Wharton School, and um, we did expeditions for Wharton School students, taking them down to Kilimanjaro or down to Cotopaxi in Ecuador. And our whole purpose of that was to teach leadership to them, so by putting them in this unique learning experience. And Mike uh, approached me about, you know, can you do something similar to this for Livestrong, for cancer survivors? I'm like, well, actually, we've actually done this before. We had done a bunch of fundraising trips for other cancer organizations. And so it was easy to just take the same model and apply it to, to Livestrong. The trick for us as a business was we did all this at our cost. So, uh, you know, I didn't get paid a dime. We just figured out what was it. We wanted the most amount of money possible to go to the, to the charity, to the end unit. So, um, you know, as a business person, there's only so many of these you could do a year. And we were super excited to partner with Livestrong. And you lived through that experience, so you understand how powerful it was. I mean, there's really very little things that are as emotive, um, as kind of like heart-wrenching and, and heart-fulfilling as taking you know cancer survivors and people who lost family members to cancer and put them in this unique environment where we had more than just a gigantic summit. We had incredible relationships that were developed and people had to dig deep inside themselves to try to be the best version of themselves, you know, to, to really live up to their potential. And that unique environment allowed for all of this personal growth to come out of it. I mean, it, it's pretty amazing how if you – everybody's the, the hero of their own story. And your job, like your job as Jeremy and my job as Chris and everybody who's a listener's job as some kind of a leader or a parent is to try to find a way to guide 
the, the hero through this journey and, and certainly exposing them to conflict is critical for their personal growth. So the heroes, uh, you know, we want them to develop as a person to be the best version of themselves. So uh, when we go to a place like Kilimanjaro, there's all the natural uh, conflicts are built into it. So when we look at great literature, it's man versus nature. So it's Jeremy versus the mountain. But it's also Jeremy versus himself because there's lots of opportunity to to want to quit, right? You have to overcome all this pain and everything else that happens out there. And then it's it's Jeremy versus other people. So it's you know it's man versus nature, it's man versus himself, and then man versus other men. And you know especially with somebody like you on that trip, our job was to you you were not going to have much of a problem getting to the summit. Right, and I didn't think you were going to have self doubt that was going to overwhelm you. So it was really, how did we put Jeremy in situations where the biggest challenge he was really going to have was was with other people, and not that you were negative to other people, but we gave you opportunities by giving you more stuff to carry, by putting you in a position of more leadership along the way. So all of a sudden, your best self was involved with how you can be best to other people, and you know that was critical to to obviously help you helped other people get to the top, but it was also critical to your own personal growth. Like the, the, just getting to the summit of Kilimanjaro by yourself would have never pushed you in anywhere near the level that you were pushed on that trip because now you were, your job was not to get yourself to the summit, but was to get other people to the summit. So I love that aspect of, of leadership and educating is putting people in these situations where their best self has to come out and, you know, truly believe that we, do this by exposing people to conflict that's going to help people learn about themselves and then hopefully at the end show them hey you can apply what you just learned here to your life back at home yeah and so do you think you know a lot of those you talk a lot about personal growth and i, re- I really like that and I, I as a fitness or endurance athlete i always think that you know that some of that a lot of that personal growth kind of it comes up more quickly when you're when you're physically and emotionally and mentally stressed. When you're put in those situations where you have to, you know, you have to take care of others, you have to think about others. I think that it drives growth. At least it does for me. Do you think that's kind of the case in mountaineering too? Oh yeah, hundred percent. It doesn't even matter if you if it's in a conference room, right? You have to put, you have to find the challenge so that people can you know, literally just be the better version of themselves. So if I just put you in a, in a situation where you're not challenged, then you actually are going to get lazier. You're going to become more complacent. You might become, uh, you might actually end up being dysfunctional in the end because you're, one of the needs that we all have is personal growth. So um, this is actually, everyone should grab a pencil, right? <laughs> write this down. So there's six psychological needs that we have as a member of a team. And one of them, as I just said, is personal growth. So you can imagine if you're working in an environment and you're stagnating, right? You're not growing. You're not learning new skills. Then that actually will, uh, you know, it is. It's it's making you less functional than you could be. You know, it's actually can be making you dysfunctional. So it's respect. It's recognition. It's um, belonging. So you've ever been a member of a team where you didn't quite fit in? Like if there was a click and they didn't involve you in things like that. Really makes people super sad obviously um it's autonomy which really means the freedom to to do work you know never nobody wants to be micromanaged um and then it's personal growth as i said and then it's meaning that everything that we do has a larger purpose so if we as leaders if we are as parents again are making sure that we deliver on those six psychological needs then 
uh, we're, we can't blame ourselves if somebody becomes dysfunctional. <laughs> so, because if we don't give that to people, then we will take amazing people and make them worse. Oh, sure. And I, I remember uh, reading, I think I read this maybe in your book or I heard it on a podcast, and you talked about the different types of people that end up in an organization or on an expedition um, team. Can you talk a little bit about how those different types of people and, and how they, how they, who they are and how they develop? Yeah, so uh, the guy named Don Schmink and I, we actually met on a fundraising trip for cancer, actually. <laughs> um, he, we wrote a book called High Altitude Leadership, and in mountaineering, you stay alive by knowing the dangers and avoiding them. So we have what we call objective dangers and subjective dangers in mountaineering. So subjective dangers are human-caused errors, and objective dangers are, you know, ain't dangers or errors that you have no control over. So you don't have any control of a rock falling through the air and hitting you on the head. You don't have any control of an avalanche catching you. You really don't have much control over the weather. So um, there's objective and there's, there's subjective danger. So in the book, we looked at the subjective dangers of a workplace. And we identified eight of these different dangers. And then we, um, we built the book around kind of exploring each of those dangers. And so in the course of that, we start talking about different types of people. I mean, you, you, are, you are being judged constantly. And, you know, Claire's judging you, your friends are judging you, you judge other people. And most people don't understand that we know this subconsciously, but consciously, the way we judge people are based on two different axes. So everybody judges you on, on do you deliver strategic results? So let's just say you don't take out the garbage, right? That was a strategic action that you were supposed to do for Claire, and you didn't do it, so you're actually now a big fat jerk, right? <laughs> so yes. the other thing that we, we judge people on, is the other axis is, are you aligned with my core values? So you could be the greatest guy in the world about taking out the garbage, but you could be a total jerk about telling everybody how great you are, right? You could be this arrogant jerk. So everybody judges us on these two axes. And so if you took a piece of paper and you just drew this out, you'd find that the people that you want to be, uh, you know, the the person you want to be married to, the people that you uh, want to associate and work with, are the people who deliver strategic results and are aligned with your core values. And everybody else, you could see if you did a little grid here, you'd find that there's a group of people that deliver strategic results but are not aligned with your core values. And everybody has worked with somebody like that. You know, like it might be a, a, an amazing salesperson who, you know, is absolutely convinced that if it wasn't for them, the whole business would fail, right? So you see this person as arrogant. They see themselves as a messiah, right? You actually start to feel, you could actually start to feel like you're being held hostage by this person because they, um, you know, they're, especially the boss, might, the owner of the company might feel that, right? Oh my goodness, if that person leaves, this whole place is going to go to hell in a handbasket. Well, the reality is, that those people are propped up by everybody else. It's the infrastructure of the company that allows them to be successful. So on the other side, we've all worked with somebody who's the nicest person in the world but just can't get anything done, right? <laughs> so those people, to tell you the truth, are harder to fire than the rainmakers, you know, the arrogant person who delivers strategic results. So our job, obviously, is to create environments where we surround ourselves by people who deliver on those results and are aligned with our core values. And that, as a leader, there's a lot of things that you have to do to, to deliver on that. One is you have to tell people what results you want. And you have to tell people what core values that you believe in. Because if people don't know where you're going, they can't help you get there. You know, if they don't know what you expect of them, how do you expect them to live up to your expectations? And the same thing happens in our family and in our, our, our marriages, right? Like, we have to be 
willing to talk about that stuff with them. Otherwise, you know, th- th- they're not going to, they're going to have the same, you know, challenges trying to meet up, meet our expectations. Yeah, the thread, the vein of, uh, of the, how these things fit in all different aspects of life that, you know, the, you have, your core values have to align in your, for your parenting, for your um, spouse, they have to align at work. But there are, like you said, always some people that fall into different quadrants. Um, hopefully your wife isn't one of those. But how do you manage those on an expedition, say? I mean, if you're stuck out in a mountain, like for Survivor Summit, how, like if I was the jerk, how, would you, well, how are you going to handle me? Well, I'd go back to those six cycles. So every, <clears throat> when you have somebody who uh, challenges you like that, right, is a challenge to be around, the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, is the problem me? Because you might be making people dysfunctional, like we said before. So the first thing I do is I go back to the six psychological needs. And you can say, okay, great. Like, um, I, you know, I didn't pat Jeremy on the back enough today. Like, I didn't give enough recognition. And Jeremy needs a lot of recognition. So that's important for me to know as your leader. Some people don't need much recognition at all. Like, you know, maybe your wife Claire doesn't need any recognition. She needs a lot of respect and she needs a, a strong sense of belonging so we all have different amounts of those needs but let's say you've gone back and you've, you've checked through this little checklist you've made for yourself and you're like no actually we've done a really good job of making you know helping jeremy understand the personal growth and making him feel like he belongs in the team and all their stuff but he's still an idiot then we might start to say well he could actually be uh born an idiot because some people are Right? So we can't fix everybody. There's people that have all sorts of different types of pathologies, whether it's narcissism or what else it is. So there are definitely people that you cannot fix. And, uh, you know, in the, the expedition sense, that's, a, that's not fun, but it's okay because that, you know, you know the expedition is going to end. What about like in the workplace, though? Then that person could be around a long period of time. Then you have to make a decision. Do you Do you actually you know, do you fire that person? You know, do you ask that person to leave? Because the most successful teams are the ones who look at the people in that top quadrant, right? The people who deliver strategic uh, results and are aligned with our core values. And they build a whole organization to serve those people. And if anybody is not, uh, you know, it's not helping that group be successful, then they have to be asked to leave the team. And some companies just can't quite get around that. Like, they don't realize that the that the, the A players are the most important players. Like in general, the A players they just keep asking more and more of, and they just like, well, you know, that, that person could just be a martyr. They can handle this. They could suck this stuff up. But when they're surrounded by jerks, they're literally becoming less productive, and and they're becoming less happy. So the most important thing you do is to get rid of the bad people to allow the good people to to really kick ass. So choose, you know. So basically, you know, it's choosing the right partners. If you have control over that, it's it's in life and business. You choose the right employees. You choose the right, you know, spouse. Um, you choose the right expedition partners. Um, but then you have to go through those, and you know, and then you can manage it through the needs you were talking about. But you have to make sure that they all align with the core values. That, obviously, that's incredibly important. Oh heck yeah, yeah. And businesses that hire and train and fire based on core values are the ones who are going to be the most they literally are the most successful businesses yeah i can believe that and so you've had to so you've gone on a lot of expeditions you know and are there certain people that you just kind of uh are gravitated towards to go to be expedition partners because in a lot of cases your life is on the line how do you find out if 
what how do you find out what somebody's core values are if you're say doing an interview or you know trying to find them for an expedition or maybe you can give some love advice like how do you find a spouse or a partner that has the same core values as you well I, in in mountaineering because it's life or death the single most important core value is trust and excuse me is is trust but you know it goes to you know the partnership thing so with the two most important words in any partnership are trust and caring. And so you have to have somebody who, first of all, is trustworthy. Like, will they be for, there for me when I need them the most? And I have been on expeditions where people have not been worthy of my trust. And it's, uh, I, I mean, I, I literally walked away from a K2 expedition because of that. Um, and we were on another K2 expedition and another team that was parallel to us. One of the guys ended up dying, and it was completely a trust issue. They, they, he, he didn't trust his partners, so he's making decisions as an individual. And um, the teams, uh, literally, he got left behind by his climbing partner uh, on the descent from the summit, and he just sat down and froze to death. So um, there's huge consequences for that. And we know the same thing in businesses. Uh, businesses that have that rank the highest in trust outperform their peers by five times in terms of profitability. So if you have two equal companies and one is, is high in trust and one's low in trust, the high in trust company is going to make more money, five times more money than the other company. So, like, you cannot you, – trust is absolutely critical. And then partnering with that, of course, is, is the, you know, the caring. So if you um, look at marriages, the most successful marriages are marriages in which there's lots of interaction, lots of tiny, tiny um, – they call him, there's a guy named John Gobbin, who's a famous uh, marriage uh, therapist, and he uses the term bids. But So the more times that you stop and, and say stuff to Claire, like, oh, you're, you look so great right now, like, oh, you know, like, thanks so much for doing this. Whatever small thing that you do, and it could be uh, like two words, you know, a microscopic thing, a, just to put your hand on her back, whatever it happens to be, those uh, amounts of, those little bids are signs that you care about her. And if she returns those to you, maybe every once in a while, if you do something nice to her, so like you, you need those bids and she needs those bids and relationships that have the highest number of those little bids on a daily basis are the ones that are most successful. So it's tiny little things that allow people to know that you care about them. It's amazing how dysfunctional you will make people if they don't feel that you, they have your back. And you have, you have their back. And a lot of what you're talking about too is, is I find this part interesting. You're, we're kind of identifying, you know, how to find people that have these traits, but it's also equally important to develop these traits in yourself, to be the trustworthy person, to analyze yourself. I, for my athletes that I coach, I always say, I always tell them, be the, be the athlete you want to be, be the runner you want to be. Like imagine what they would do and then go do that. So what, you know, how can people become, how, how, what's the best way for someone to look within themselves and say, I'm that trustworthy person, I'm the A player, I'm, you know, and what can they do to, to really objectively look at themselves and determine that? I think that one of the challenges that most people have is that they're intuitively, let's just, let's just say you're a leader of, a, of an organization, right? You, you reach that point of leadership. You were entrusted with that leadership because, at least on an, in, you, you know, like you're you're damn good, right? The problem is that most people are just intuitive about this. Like if I said to Jeremy, what are like what are the four things that you do that make you an exceptional coach or an exceptional business leader or exceptional husband, you know, an exceptional husband, you uh, will probably start just guessing at those four things, right? And 
it's actually an intellectual pursuit that we have to have. It's the same thing that you try to do for your coaches, right? This is what makes the difference between a coach and an athlete. An athlete is, uh, is, is you know, they, they kind of take their gifts for uh, granted, and they if they don't have a true intellectual uh, understanding of what they do, then they might be uh, great 80% of the time. But you as a coach are trying to get them to be to be intellectual, like be conscious of what makes them excellent. And that's what, how you help them become excellent, you know, 95% of the time. And it's the same thing with us as leaders. Like if we don't study leadership, if we don't study how to be a good parent, if we don't, you know, constantly question ourselves and look at ourselves to try to figure out how to be better at something, you know, give ourselves an after action review or whatever you want to call it, then we're only going to be, uh, we're only going to be in, intuitively good. We're only going to be good 80% of the time, not 95% of the time. And think about how much better your life would be as if you were better, you were your best self 95% of the time versus 80% of the time. And that's the thing, like, you look at, like, Olympic-level athletes. I mean, they're, they're desperate to get one-tenth of one percent better. So they're, they're going to analyze absolutely everything with the help of all these coaches. Right. And one thing, so one thing I tell my athletes a lot is uh, <clears throat> they're always often focused on the goal. You know, for whatever they're training for something, they're only focused on the goal, and they and they don't. What I tell them is, you just have to worry about what you do on a daily basis, what your daily actions are, what your interactions are uh, with other athletes, and you'll eventually get to the goal. Um, how does that apply? Does something like that apply to both mountaineering or business? You know, do do you try to get people to focus more on their everyday actions and just occasionally look at the big picture? Well, mountaineering is it's such a great metaphor for this kind of stuff, right? So yeah. if you stand on the base of, uh, you know, K2 in base camp, you're like, there's no way I can get to the top. I mean, it just looks so far away, and there's so much, you know, danger and difficulty between you and the summit. So it really is like, can I get to camp one? Can I get to camp two? You know, can I get to camp three? And so it's a series. You just constantly build towards that ultimate goal. Um, I yeah, I think those of us who are successful for long periods of time have come to understand that, that it's really about taking one step and then the next step and the next step. In fact, I actually worry sometimes for people who um, are too focused, like they come up with a list of goals at the beginning of a year and that they're too focused on that list of goals and they might be missing other opportunities along the way. Um, so I actually, you know, tell people all the time, like, you know, I'm so glad I didn't engineer my life cause I would have never ended up where I am right now. So if I followed the normal path, I would have been an accountant. Right. So instead, you know, I've got this, you know, whatever, a super fun life <laughs> that has nothing to do with accounting. <laughs> right. so, yeah. Uh, that's great. So you, let's talk a little bit about your, well, we'll tell people about your book is high altitude leadership. And uh, when did you write that book, and who was your partner on that? It was Don Schmanke? It was Don Schmanke, and uh, we actually wrote that ages ago. So it's actually now 10 years old. Luckily for us, it's got real staying power, so it continues to sell uh, quite well. You know, it's, it's uh, people. The, the book has really resonated for people. It, people should get it, for, if for no other reasons, but that it actually has some pretty cool pictures in it. It does. <laughs> so, it does. Yeah, it's a good, good stories. Um, I, I, you know, I do, having just said that about people, you know, making too strong of a list of what they need to do next year. My On my list for next year is to complete a book that I've been uh, working on for a long period of time, which is really 
taking people through the next stage of the journey on, you know, how to create and lead high performance teams. So, um, I think it's really, you know, everybody, you know, if, if all of our bosses read this book, which is the stuff that I do with groups, so it's just taking stuff that I do all the time in, in workshops, et cetera, and just put it into a book form. I think if everybody had a boss that followed that, that core learnings on how to lead a team, I think that uh, everybody's job would be a lot better. So. And so did you learn most about leadership from, were you naturally inclined to be a leader and on expeditions of business, or did you go on expeditions and you saw how great leaders treated people and acted and then it just kind of like how did that how did that process come about well i think if you're going on expeditions where your life is in danger constantly yeah. <laughs> right you better be a, a good student of how to help a team be the best version of itself right and the more truly the better you treat people the more likely they're going to come to your rescue so there's a you know a built-in incentive to being nice and being a good leader. So, so there's that piece of it. But I just have a in, strong intellectual uh, interest in this. I, I've always been fascinated by great leaders. You know whether it's Teddy Roosevelt or you know Lewis and Clark or whomever. And so as a student of history, I was fascinated by leaders, and that just made me want to you know intellectually understand what made these people great. And so I've always pursued that. And then I've been professionally stuck in situations where I've had to be, I've had to learn how to become good at teaching leadership. So I did a lot of work with covert ops teams and we started working with um, these groups of spies who were putting listening posts in things like elevator shafts in Baghdad and ridge tops over Sarajevo and stuff. And so when you're teaching a group like that, um, who literally are going to be in life or death situations, um, you really need to give them more than just, you know, teaching them how to use knots. Like one day I was sitting at my desk and the, the NSA called my phone and said, "Hey, you, I got to patch you through to a, you know, a team in the field." So these guys were in a building. Um, I, I think it back that they couldn't tell me where they were, but um, they literally had been found out. And so the police, etc., were uh, coming to the base of the building. They barricaded themselves on the roof of the building, and they called me up. I'm like, dude, like, we're dead. Like, how do we get off of here? And uh, so funny enough, I said to him, do you guys happen to have a grappling hook? <laughs> they what? did. And literally, we walked them through how to build a Tyrolean traverse, right, or a zip line from one building to the next. And all of them got out of their life. And a couple of weeks later, they showed back up and, you know, and were talking to me like, you know, still the adrenaline was pumping through their system. Like, dude, we can't tell you everything that just happened. But, you know, if it wasn't for you, we would have all been dead. And so what they said was the most important thing they learned from me was not um, how to tie the knots, but was how to stay in control in a life or death situation and how to get everybody to be firing on all cylinders. And so that led to a lot more work with groups like, you know, groups within the CIA and all sorts of stuff. So we were really um, training people. Like when you're... When you're in a forward operating base in Afghanistan, you have a very limited amount of, of physical resources, right? You have so many bullets, you have so many guns, you have all this other stuff. So you're always underprepared for the worst case scenario. So how do you survive in that situation? Well, it ends up that there's three drivers of results. So there's the tools that you bring to the job. There's the techniques, right? So let's go... Um, right back, I guess, to, to you know, a, a special ops team. So, you know, like, yes, you have uh, guns and you have, you know, maybe a drone and you have all sorts of stuff. Then there's techniques, right? Do you know how to shoot straight? <laughs> like, do you know how to, to, to outflank the enemy, etc. But in the end, the biggest driver of results is behaviors. 
And we know this um, in the business world. So literally, if you have your MBA from Harvard and you have all of this amazing uh, you know, business skills like finance techniques, etc., that only will predict to, to, to 25% your future success. 75% of your future success is actually dependent upon your behaviors. So every team, you can give them, you know, limited tools, you can give them, you know, limited skills, but if you can get their behaviors to be right, then you're going to drive the results that you want to drive. And it's the same, that's why literally the trips that we did with Wharton taking him to a peak like Cotopaxi, which is, you know, a technical glaciated mountain that's 19 and a half thousand feet, you would give people ice axes and crampons and harnesses and ropes, so tools they had never used before. You'd give them three hours of instruction on how to use these tools. And then you would uh, put them in a situation literally where if somebody screwed up, they would all die. And it was the behaviors of the group that allowed the group to be successful. So a good lesson for people from this, you know, if they take, you could kind of reverse engineer how you want to achieve something. So you look at what you want to achieve and you say, okay, what tools, what techniques do I need? What behaviors do I really need to use to reach that goal? Would that make sense? Yes, and Jeremy, that's exactly what we did. Remember the very first day that we were at, at, you know, in the, the lodge for climbing Kilimanjaro, we focused on behaviors. We had a discussion on what behaviors it was going to take. We identified what our goal was, which was to get 100% of us to the summit. And then we talked, okay, what behaviors is gonna t- is gonna, are, is, are required to get us to reach our goal? So to get 100% of the people you know, to the top and back down safely, well, it was going to require that um, people ask for help, right? That they, you couldn't be proudful. You have to be willing to accept help. And that meant you also had to ask for help. So things like that we, did, we identified as being the behaviors that we need to be able to achieve our goal. I like that. So going back to Kilimanjaro, what, what is the, you know, like for you uh, – Probably doing Kilimanjaro is kind of, you know, like a, it's a walk in the park for the most part. Um, a nice walk. <laughs> a nice walk, a nice stroll. Yeah, yeah. So how does that, um, do, are there any, you know, when so when there's, and, it, and it's less dangerous. So let's say you're going to K2, you know, do you focus, do you always focus on much different, beha- are, are the behaviors different to accomplish these goals or are all the behaviors pretty much the same? I actually think they're the same. I think there's four key characteristics that everybody needs as a member of a team or a leader. And the first one is passion. And we, there's a million years ago, this mentor told me this great line. He said, nothing is, is as contagious as enthusiasm. And the truth is that nothing is as contagious as emotions. And so if you surround yourself by positive people, it is uh, amazing how much more they can accomplish. In fact, there's tremendous statistics on uh, cynics. And so cynics make less money. Cynics have less friends. Cynics die earlier than optimists do. In fact, they generally die of either dementia or heart failure. And so the good news is that we kill cynics very quickly, right? (laughs) Or they kill themselves so they don't have to stick around so long. But nobody likes working with a cynic. So if you have people that are negative on your team, right, if they bring the wrong type of passion, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring everybody down. And so the number, the number, the first characteristics I say that's most important to achieving goals is passion, and especially positive passion. So, again, if you go to statistics on just looking at positive people, positive people make more money than other people. Positive people are more uh, creative than other people. Positive people um, get promotions more, and positive people are more creative. So you want to be surrounded by positive people. So the second one is vision. Uh, the, the number one thing that people look for in a leader is uh, 
is whether or not they're forward-looking. So you cannot be a leader unless you are seen as being visionary. You have to tell people where you're going or they cannot help you get there. And so that's just, you know, a, a fact. So it's actually difficult to, to learn how to craft and communicate a vision, especially in these dynamic environments that we are, whether you're on a mountain or running a business. I mean, things are constantly changing in the economy, et cetera. So you have to be, uh, you have to really work on being able to craft and communicate that vision. The, the third one is partnerships. So we talked earlier about trust and caring. And um, so then the last one is really perseverance. So when you're climbing a Kilimanjaro or K2, clearly you're, it's, it's hard work. But the biggest thing is, is not just working hard, but working smart. So I worked with the coaches of the Ravens when they won the Super Bowl. And one of the things that we were talking about, of course, is that, you know, this idea of like, how do we help people work smarter? Because, you know, and they are lucky because they have a game on a Sunday and then they could take Monday to look at game film and they just analyze the stuff that they did well or didn't do well. So um, we don't take it's not built into your schedule or my schedule to stop once a week to look at what we just achieved the day before. Right. So we had a week's worth of work to try to prepare for Sunday. And then we spent Monday looking back on last week. So the same thing has, should have, be happening in our workplace. Like we have to have conversations with people constantly, you know, we call them after action reviews, but let's look back on what we just went through so that we can learn from it so that we can take the best practices forward. So, you know, the best teams are constantly reflecting upon what they do so they could be better prepared for a bigger challenge that's coming their way. So it's really those four things that are the characteristics of any high, member of a high performance team. It's, you know, are they passionate? Are they, uh, can they craft and communicate a vision? Are they good partners, right? Are they willing, are they, have they earned our trust, right? And do they willingly give trust? Do they care about us and they show that they care about us? And last is, um, are they, you know, are they excited about learning how to work smart? Like it's not just brawn anymore. It's brains and brawn that's going to get us to the goal. I like that a lot. Uh, So let's talk a little bit. We've talked a lot about leadership, um, you know, six needs that people have, um, how to drive results. So, well, we haven't touched a lot on your entrepreneurship background. Um, we, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but you said you started, uh, well, it's called EarthTrex now. Could you give us a little background on how you got started and how you grew that to what it is today? Yeah, so I, uh, I always loved teaching climbing. And so I was teaching for Outward Bound, and I was working in Baltimore, so it was mainly inner city kids that were taken in the woods. And so we would have these amazing experiences, but they really weren't that, you know, they would go rappelling and they would go climbing, but they didn't really necessarily want to learn how to climb. And so I started a, on the side a business called Earth Tracks where we took people and we taught them how to rock climb. And we also taught them how to mountaineer. So we took people down to South America, took them to the Himalayas, you know, wherever we could go on these trips. Um, then everything changed for us in the mid-90s. There was a starting of these indoor rock climbing gyms. And we, uh, it was pretty obvious to me that that was the future of the sport of climbing. And so um, I was on Mount McKinley, which is the highest peak in North America, and we were stuck at 14,000 feet in a blizzard for six days. It was snowing so hard that we could not get out of the tent. Like, we'd get out of the tent to unbury the tent from the snow so it wouldn't collapse. And my client on that trip was, um, he probably was worth about a billion dollars at the time. And he was the greatest guy ever. And so we were bored out of our minds after the fourth or fifth day. And so I said, you know, I always wanted to open a climbing gym. And he was ecstatic that we had something now to talk about. And so we um, we literally, the only paper we had was toilet paper. So we had a Sharpie marker and a roll of toilet paper. And we literally wrote out the projections for a climbing gym on toilet paper. And he was like, 
look, if you if you get me out of here alive, I'll lend you the four hundred thousand dollars to start this thing. So I was like, all right, and that, you know, it wasn't up to me. It was up to the weather to stop the blizzard to stop. So the blizzard stops. I take all the toilet paper and I shove it in a Ziploc bag, and we get on our skis and we make it back out to the, where the planes come in. And we make it back to the United States, and I took the toilet paper and converted it into a spreadsheet. And I faxed off the spreadsheet to him on a Friday afternoon. And 15 minutes later, he uh, called me up and said, okay, where do you want me to send the money? So he was good for his words. So he sent us the $400,000, which we built the first gym with. And then uh, we kept growing that business. And now we have, we just did a merger. So we, we have about 11 climbing gyms right now. We have a bunch of more um, that are under lease. And so our goal is to create a business that has roughly 24, 25 climbing gyms um, within the next four or five years. Well, you know, uh, physical fitness is really a, it's a problem in Mississippi. Mississippi is one of the most uh, overweight and obese states. And so you know, we could really use a climbing gym here. At the very least, it would make me happy. So, you know, I know, yeah. I know you have no plans of doing that, but what would it take for me to talk you into coming down to Mississippi and building a climbing gym? So we're not a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, climbing gyms are unique. So you, they're very dependent upon millennials, and uh, active millennials are the group that we're really seeking. So um, that's why places like you know Northern Virginia, Silicon Valley, those kinds of places are really where climbing gyms uh, make the most sense as a business. So um, yeah, my uh, you know advice to you would be is go to the city and try to get the city to add a climbing wall into one of their rec centers and see how that works out first. Yeah, and then you can you can seed the population, and then once everyone realizes how cool climbing is, um, you know, after you've built the market for us, then maybe we'll come in. Okay, yeah. After I get it going, I'll come talk to you. I'll do all the hard work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, we've talked a lot about leadership and entrepreneurship, and I know a lot of people listening are gonna are gonna want to hear more about this as it pertains to mountaineering. So, I kind of want to switch the focus a little bit over to some of these some of the some of the stuff that you've done over the years. Um, First, let's start off with what's we've mentioned mountaineering. You've mentioned you've mentioned climbing. What's the big difference between mountaineering and climbing, and what exactly does it mean to be a mountaineer? Well, mountaineering would be a subset of climbing, right? So climbing is just like the whole overall sport, and then you have indoor climbing. So people are climbing plywood walls with plastic handholds bolted to them. You have what's called bouldering. So people might be trying to climb a fourteen foot tall boulder. Uh, generally. Uh, in bouldering, it's a little bit more like trying to go for your pers- your personal best in weightlifting. So you're generally picking up something that's a lot heavier. So you're picking up less times. So bouldering problems tend to be really f- uh, physically intense and gymnastically intense. Then there's rope climbing. So you might be climbing, you know, like yesterday we were out and we did a, 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 a two different rock climbs in Rocky Mountain National Park. So it was, we did a, what we call 11 pitches, so 11 rope lengths to get up these two different rock spires. But you might go to your local cliff and maybe it's only 30 feet high and you might climb that, with, but using a rope. And then there's, uh, you know, mountaineering so mountaineering is you're obviously trying to reach the summit of a peak and mountaineering might involve uh, you could have a non-technical mountain that you climb so it's just a trail that leads to the top or you could have an extremely technical rock that you're climbing that has lots of rope climbing on it you know you have to use your hands and feet the whole way to claw your way to the top and all sorts of technical gear to be able to help you get there so mountaineering is to me is just more um it's way more involved, generally involves exotic travel, which I love. You know, it generally involves long periods away from home. So when we were on 
K2 in 2007, for, for example, we were 89 days door to door. You know, but yesterday I was out for, you know, 12 hours. So, you know, obviously you could. <laughs> so I, I like the long involved, you know, exotic, super high adventure, low chance of, of success. That's another thing that's built into the, to the sport of climbing is failure. And uh, I think it actually is one of the most, uh, you know, fun parts of it because learning how to deal with failure and learning how to pick yourself back up again and to attack a time and time again is critically important to us in every aspect of life. I mean, there's actually a term for this called self-efficacy. So you would love for your son, Jet, to be have a high level of self-efficacy. So if something goes wrong, he can, you know, he fails at something, he picks himself back up again and tries again. And if you look at a child, children are born with ridiculous amounts of self-efficacy. I mean, look at how difficult it is to learn to walk or talk but they never stop the process of trying to to learn it you know as we get to become adults our ability to handle failure uh it it, it lessens over time so our we would love to be surrounded by people with high self-efficacy so speaking of failure i had recently uh received alex honald's book um Uh on the wall and i was just this is kind of just a little segue, but uh, what do you think about that free soloing where people are just climbing up things with no? I mean, there's you're if you fail there, it's permanent failure. It seems like. I mean, is that? What do you think about that? Is that a, is that a just a little crazy? Is it too far too far gone? So, as you're saying, right? So, if you are climbing up a rock and you have no ropes attached to you, there is no margin of error. You slip and you fall to your death. And uh, let's say you fall 30 feet, there's a good chance that you're going to survive, right? But if you fall 3,000 feet, you're almost guaranteed to be dead. <laughs> so uh, I actually have fallen once 450 feet through the air. And luckily for me, I hit a super steep snow slope. So I bounced out and then was buried 50 feet later like a dart. So I actually uh, lived through that experience. I, I did have a tiny scratch on my nose and severe psychological damage. So <laughs> I don't recommend it to anybody. But uh, so I can res- I have tremendous respect for somebody who has the, the mental discipline to be able to climb um, without a rope and to, to, to expose themselves to that potential for death. I am, am the first American to have ever have soloed an 8,000-meter peak. So um, El Capitan, which Alex Honnold is famously soloed, so that's 3,200 feet. The face that I climbed was over 7,000 feet. And I was younger than I am now, a lot younger. I think I was 38 at the time. So it's the peak of my mountaineering, you know, abilities physically and probably mentally. And, um, you know, I was freaking lucky, to tell you the truth. Like, I was just me, two ice axes and my crampons, you know, climbing a 7,000-foot face. And it was extremely technical. Not as technical as El Cap, but it was still extremely technical. And um, so, you know, you you had to be, you really had to be the best, like, crazy amazingly the best version of yourself to be able to overcome that and uh so i i I truly have tremendous respect for people who can do that i i I am not that athlete anymore that's impressive so how do you how this is one question i want to get to and then we'll get into the mountaineering a little more specific stories but how do you manage fear one of the things I've, i've read or seen you talk about is managing fear you know for me I've always want my my wife and I always laugh because I basically have my whole life wanted to be just a great mountaineer and a great climber, but well, one I grew up in Iowa, now I live in Mississippi, not a lot of mountains, and two I'm scared of heights. I get up and 
I get up in places where it's a precarious situation and I lose my equilibrium and and so I have I have a lot of fear in those situations. So do you have like do guys like you or Alex Honnold is it an absence of fear? Is it managing fear? How yeah, so fear, um, there's this thing called immersion therapy. So let's just say, are you afraid of heights? So the first thing you should do is climb you know, a stepladder, and then you should climb a 40-foot ladder, and then you should climb the Eiffel Tower, and then you know, it keeps going on from there. So if you just started on the Eiffel Tower, you'd, you know, you'd be a basket case. You'd have, you know, whatever, poop in your pants as a result of this. So you got to start a little and build yourself up. But this is the same way in anything. Like, look, you're, you know, like if you're training people to, to run a marathon, it's the same thing. Like, you know, go for a walk around the block. And then three days later, you know, go for a jog around the block and then go for a run. And then, you know, just keep building up to this. So, yeah, we're, it, it would be uh, beyond foolish for you to start at the biggest challenge and then, you know, and, and think that, you know, like, like the Holy Grail of climbing, say, let's just pretend it's Mount Everest, right? So it'd be silly to start at Mount Everest. It's far better to go climb a 14er in Colorado and then, you know, kind of work up towards this kind of thing, especially because your margin of error as an inexperienced person is really, uh, it's zero, right? You can't solve any of the things that go wrong. So for an Alex Honnold, you know, or somebody who's extremely experienced, their margin of error is tremendous, they have, uh, you know, when things go wrong, they have lots of solutions to that problem, which is critical because you might only have a split second to make the right decision. And in those split seconds, I mean, they know this from uh, the, the most famous study was the study of firemen. So a, a team of firemen are racing towards a fire and as they're pulling on the block, you know, they first of all, they gotten some data from, you know, dispatch and they're pulling on the block. They're observing how the flames are moving through the house. And so as a result of that, they say, okay, let, let's say they're going to, they need to rescue somebody in the house. So they go through, okay, can we go through the front door? No, because the flames are coming here. Can we go through the roof to get to them? Can we go through the back door? Like they, they're starting to look at all these potential solutions. And because based on the data that they're able to receive, they're actually able to take solutions off the table and they end up with one solution, the best solution. The only reason they can do that is because they've seen hundreds of fires. If they've come to their first fire, they're going to just run through the front door and then they will also to be killed so you know in these situations you have to have a, a tremendous amount of past experience to make the right decision in the moment that's that's super critical so you're gonna make my wife happy with that answer because that means I, my <laughs> idea of just going to climb mount everest in a couple of years is probably out out the off the table huh uh look you can you can buy margins of error right so you can go and hire, you know, a guide and you can bring extra Sherpas and extra oxygen. So there's lots of ways you can buy uh, your way out of inexperience on a peak like Mount Everest. But if you try to apply that same thinking to a K2, then you're absolutely ridiculously foolish because the dangers on a K2 are different than the dangers on an Everest. And the dangers on a K2 are, uh, are much more extreme. So just you can't buy your way to the top anymore. So you need to have, you need to, you know, you need to pay your dues before you go there. All so, right, fine. Lesson, yeah. lesson taken. I understand. Uh, so yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about Everest. You know, like you said, let's just pretend that Everest is the holy grail. But Everest, for most yeah. people, is the is the one thing that people know. It's obviously the tallest yeah. mountain in the world. Everyone's seen the movie Into Thin Air or read the book. Um, so what is what is Everest really like? And what is it? What is it? Just because it's the tallest mountain that it's such a big draw? Well, definitely. Everything that ends in ESTR, right? So biggest, fastest, you know, prettiest, you know, whatever, richest. 
So, it's, I mean, it's almost ironic that it's Everest, right, that ends in EST as opposed to, you know, whatever, K1 or whatever the heck it would happen to be. So, um, but, yeah, so I have a mixed relationship with Everest. I guided Everest for three seasons. And when I first, this is 2000, 2001, 2003. So, in the early days, you know, really everything changed, I think, really fundamentally and first in 1996 when the first commercial expeditions went there. And so, um, or not necessarily the first, but the, the most famous ones, the into thin air stories that you're talking about. So what allowed even Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, the first two people to get to the summit of Everest, what allowed them to get to the summit of Everest was infrastructure. So they brought 2,000 porters carried equipment to get those guys to base camp. They had 45 climbers and Sherpas that were on that expedition. They Tenzing Norgay was his sixth expedition to Mount Everest. In fact, the year before he had gotten to within 600 feet of the top. So there was um, there was no unknown, right? Because Tenzing Norgay had already been to within 600 feet of the top. So there's only 600 feet of a 9,000 foot mountain that they had to you know cross for the first period of time. There was this tremendous infrastructure, bottles of oxygen. You know, if they met an obstacle on Mount Everest, they literally, if, if it was a, a crack in the in the ice, you know, called the crevasse, they made a bridge across the crevasse. If there was a wall of ice to climb, they propped ladders against the crevasses, so against the wall. So, you know, you climb ladders on Mount Everest, you don't climb Mount Everest, right? So that infrastructure allowed them to get to the summit. Now, we have so much more infrastructure on Mount Everest. We have, um, they, they, they put 30,000 feet of rope from the bottom to the top. So you just clip into the rope and you follow that rope. So you can't go, you can't step off the trail physically you can't because you're tied to a rope and so um there's also lots and lots of people and there's very well established camps and there's lots of oxygen bottles and there's amazing weather forecasting and stuff so er infrastructure helps people get to the summit of a mount everest that infrastructure is great when you you know when jeremy jungling gets there because he doesn't have the years of mountaineering experience and if he relies on the infrastructure to allow him to reach his goal and I think it's great. Like, it is amazing that you have the opportunity to share the summit view. Like, I'll, let me just tell you what the view was like from the summit of Mount Everest. So, um, that you, you can see so far from the top, like probably 800 miles. And so when you look at the horizon, it's a bent line. So when you go to the beach right now, you're looking 12 miles and it's a flat line. When you're looking from 800 miles, you can literally see the curvature of the earth. And then in the layer of atmosphere above the curved Earth is filled with stuff like um, dust and moisture, etc., pollutants. And so it's a chalky white color. And then directly above that is the next layer of atmosphere that you can see. And now it's a rich blue color. And standing on the summit of Mount Everest at 10 o'clock in the morning, looking directly overhead, the sky was violet. And I could see stars twinkling. And I thought that was outrageous, right? So you're looking at the curvature of the Earth, you're looking at the first layer of atmosphere and another layer of atmosphere, and then you're looking at space. And it, you, I felt like I was on the bottom of space. That's how amazing the view was. So if you have the opportunity to get that view, like that is totally worth it. Um, but we do have a saying in mountaineering, um, don't reach the peak but miss the point. And so... You know, like you are going to Mount Everest to to go on this heroic journey, right? To be the very best version of yourself. Well, it's very easy to get up there and to put your um, your needs ahead of other people's needs. And you see this all the time. You know, the idea of people passing around people that are dying. So the last thing you want to do is to reach the summit of Everest having stepped over a dying person, right? Because then you're actually not being the best version of yourself. A behavior that you would never accept. At, uh, 
uh, sea level you would accept there. And we see this because of the overcrowding issues on Everest. We see lots of this kind of stuff. We see people crawling into other people's tents and using their oxygen or sleeping in other people's sleeping bags, etc. right? Eating their food. So we see people literally stepping over dying people to try to reach the summit. I mean, it's just crazy the kind of behaviors that we see up there so yes they reached the summit but are they proud of themselves for the way they behaved along the way that's that's the critical thing it doesn't matter if you're running a marathon building a business whatever it happens to be is you know did you reach the peak but miss the point did you literally you know did the, did the challenge bring out the best in you or did you actually uh, res, uh you know kind of like erode into a worst version of yourself because you're so focused on the goal and you put uh you put accomplishments ahead of partnership and look when you and i uh die we what we are more we, we more want to be surrounded by by friends and family than we want to be surrounded by trophies so no matter what partnerships will always trump accomplishments in the end yeah that's a good lesson i like that and I, you said it already but that there is a common thread that goes through you know, business, relationships, even if you want endurance sports, all that stuff, that common thread that you, I think a lot of people are drawn to these because it does bring out the best in yourself generally. Now, I know that on on Everest, there's a lot of uh, people, some people might know, some people might not, but, you know, when somebody dies up there, they're up there most likely permanently. <laughs> Yeah, above a certain altitude, you uh, you generally are. Uh, there has been some expeditions that have tried to remove the dead people. Um, so it's when you're climbing, like on summit day on a peak like Mount Everest, you're literally you're 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 a fraction of who you are in terms of strength. So you might be uh, you might have ten percent of the strength that you have at sea level. And if you came across a two hundred pound dead person at sea level do you know how hard it would be to pick that person up and move them and how far could you carry that person right it's literally dead weight well it's worse actually when that person freezes so a human body that's unconscious at 40 below zero will freeze solid in six hours so and people lay down in really crazy shapes right so they might be in a fetal position i mean there's a guy called the, the waving man on the north ridge of Everest who sat down on a rock and he froze literally with his hand in the air sitting on the rock. So like, you know, like you've been to a football game in the winter and all of a sudden you feel the cold creeping up to your hands and you know, through your feet and down your hands and stuff like that because you preserve your core first. So literally he froze himself, you know, in the sitting position with his hand and one hand in the air. So if you could you imagine trying to pick that guy up and carry him? No. And you can't even slide him, right? And so if you... To, to move them would take, you know, dozens and dozens of people, and every one of those people are at tremendous risk themselves. So there was a famous incident on K2 where somebody tried to move a dead body, a guy who was freshly dead, and in the process of moving that, one of the persons fell to their death. So the number one rule in rescue is don't kill the rescuer, right? It's terrible that there's been one death, but we don't need two or three people to be dead because of this one death. So, um, yeah, it's really just it's the physical difficulty and the extreme risk that's involved in trying to move somebody. That's the reason why those people are still up there. And you hear a lot of stories that come out of, you know, these mountains. And I know you've been involved in these situations before where you have to determine whether you are able to go help somebody who's in need and whether, yep. you know, how to manage that. And I think it goes back to, in your case, you know, you probably always have that, um, the core values to fall back on where you're trying, you want to be the best version of yourself. So you're going to help people if you can, you're going to put their needs over the top of your own. But is that common up there? Or is it, is it sociological? Do different people do different things? 
Well, it's extremely rare. So there, when you go help somebody in that situation, it's not really what we would call heroism, right? So yes, you are putting yourself at risk, but it's it's really what you would define as altruism. So let's say you're um, you're driving down the highway and you see somebody trying to change their tire, or they're just standing outside their car, and you have to make a decision, really in a split second, right? Because you're going 70 miles an hour. Do I pull over and help that person? Well, they know this from having studied it. In fact, there was a guy um, who had been a Holocaust survivor who spent years and years studying the issue of altruism because he saw acts of altruism happening in the concentration camps as a kid. And so when he looked at it, he, he found that the reason that people are altruistic is because they think they can help. So if you come screaming by, uh, you know, if you see some an, an older woman trying to change her car tire, you are probably likely to help because or stop and help because number one is you know how to change a tar- tire, right? But let's say you see that same elderly woman and her you knew that her problem was um, her transmission had gone. You might not stop because you don't know how to fix a transmission, right? So we the number one reason why we stop and help is because we think we can be part of a solution. That's the number one reason why people do that. When they look at who stops, right, it ends up being that roughly 10% of the population has a natural tendency to stop. And, you know, they're, they're more likely, that 10% is more likely to stop if they think they can solve the problem. So only 10% of the people even have an inclination to stop. And of the 10%, it's the people who then think they can actually help the situation that will come to their aid. And so a lot of times people will see the dangers unfolding and they won't help because they don't know how to help or their natural inclination is not to stop. I mean, we have fight, flight, or freeze, right? So again, if only 10% of us are, are uh, have the gift or the curse to be the ones to fight, you know, the other 90% have the, the, the flight and freeze mechanism that overrides that. Uh, yeah, and it's an inter- that's interesting because in a, in a place like Everest, it's all uh, magnified, I imagine. There's, it's just it's much more difficult to make these decisions. It's much more difficult to understand, and it's much more difficult even if you want to help in some cases, you probably can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, if you, um, you know, I, I've been in so many situations, so it's hard to think of a, of a specific one. Well, let me just tell you. So we were, um, we were putting on our crampons on the base of K2. So it's, we were 11,000 feet below the summit, and we're strapping on our crampons. And I'm literally with 12 of the best climbers in the world. And as we're leaning over, you know, working on the straps, somebody, for some reason, looked up and started to scream at the top of their lungs. And we looked up, and coming out of the air was the body. And the body was still alive. You could tell by the way that he was wiggling his arms or anything like that. And he fell, I, I don't know, thousands of feet through the air before he smashed into the wall the very first time. It was a gigantic explosion of blood. It was you know, obvious that this man was dead. And then he bounced out another 800 feet, another 500 feet, another 300 feet. And he literally came to a stop on the trail 500 feet above you know, 12 of the best climbers in the world. And only two of us ran to the body. And it was myself and another American, and he had been a lieutenant colonel in the Marines, and he had fought two tours of duty in Vietnam. He'd been shot four times in the back in Lebanon. He uh, was, you know, just the most amazing guy you've ever met. And we both ran to the body because we had both been around a lot of dead people, and we had been around a lot of blunt force trauma. So they say that if you... um, when you see a person, a, bo- a human being that's completely mangled through blunt force trauma, whether it's an explosion, you know, in Afghanistan or wherever it happens to be, that when you see a human body be destroyed like that, that's the most you're most likely 
you're 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 more likely to be, to get PTSD, right? So it's incredibly emotionally difficult to deal with a body like that. So we raced up to this man, and um, he it, it was obvious we knew he was dead, as I said, right? He was now laying there, and you could see the blood, you know, seeping from the back of his head, which were the was the first point of impact, and. Um, we, it, he, it was, he was terrible. Like his hips had been pulverized, so his legs were underneath his body, and his feet were coming out by his shoulders. And myself and this other buddy, you know, here's this guy who'd been, you know, a Marine recon officer. You know, had seen everything. We literally grabbed hands and held each other's hands before we touched the body, because in that situation, there's nothing you can do physically for the person, but you can do a lot for their soul. And so we wanted to make sure that the last emotion he felt leaving this earth was love. Uh, just like when Jet was born, the first thing he felt, the first emotion was love, right? He was entered into this world of love. We want him to leave in this world of love. So we literally had to gain strength by holding each other's hands, and then we gently placed our hands on this guy's body. And we just pushed as much love as we possibly could into his soul. And um, we then had to rebuild him because he was so mutilated. We couldn't let anybody else see him in this situation. So we had um, a a sleeping pad we had a down jacket we had a couple other things and so the first step was to to take his legs and pull them back out from underneath so i grabbed his torso and lifted him up and I had his head against my chest and i was like holding his underarms my buddy pulled out one leg the next leg we laid him on the sleeping pad we then covered him with the down jacket and his face was so uh rough to look at that we pulled the hood over and we tied as the hood as tight as we possibly could around his head so that nobody had to see his face and then we uh, tied you know, the strings and the knots and stuff. And we slowly, it took us probably 45 minutes to get his body prepared to lower him back down. So now we lower him down to these 10 other climbers and we can now, you know, shout instructions and stuff like this to get them to, to help us out. But they, they literally, those 10 people did not have what it took to go race to this person who just had died. And these were amazing, experienced people who had dealt with tons of fear and adversity in their lives. But in that moment, they did not have you know, that altruism that was required to be able to, to serve somebody else. And literally for me, we, this, you know, as we wrap the story up, we, we're now sitting it around the dead body. We've got him packaged in multiple garbage bags because the blood was coming out and we had him wrapped in a tent fly and stuff. And we needed to get him back to base camp where we could bring a helicopter in. And, it would, and, and the terrain between us and base camp was horrendous crevasses and ice falls and stuff like this. So 13, you know, 12 of us could not physically carry a person like this over that. We needed 60 people. So we called down to base camp and told everybody how to come up, the cook boys, everybody was going to come up this glacier to help carry his body down. And as we're sitting there in the circle looking down at him, I, I literally got this, the worst, I don't know, like, anxiety attack, I don't know what it was, but I felt like my stomach was being stabbed in the gut a hundred times, and I leaned over, and I looked back up at this group of people, and I, I knew that the reason I was going through this was because I was surrounded by ten people that I could not trust, that they would not come for me in my moment of need, and so here I am on the second highest peak in the world, you know, it's like, like the biggest honor you could ever have in mountaineering would be to summit K2, and um, I looked at him, and I said, you know what, today's my birthday, and I'm quitting and I'm going home. <laughs> so I, I started crying and I, I just quit the expedition. And when you quit an expedition on a place peak like K2, you're like, you don't just magically end up in your mother's arms. No, it's a, it's an 85 mile walk to the first road. And then it's a three day Jeep ride to a plane ride. So it was like eight days of kicking stones and pouting and feeling sorry for myself before I even got the first hug. <laughs> so anyway, I, I walked away from K2, uh, a, a giant crybaby. Luckily I got to come back and eventually reach the summit <laughs> well that's a hard that's a hard way to realize that the people you're with whose life you whose life 
when your life was going to depend on them soon that you can't trust them. That's a, that's, I can see why that would be a powerful thing. Cause if you, if that had not happened, you had gone on, that might've been you that they were not willing to come help. Oh, that's exactly the way I felt. And it was, it goes right back to that same thing, right? Like, are you aligned with my core values? Yes. These people knew how to use ice axes and crampons. They were amazing athletes, right? But they just lacked altruism. They were not worthy of trust. And so, you know, for me, looking at the most dangerous mountain in the world, because, you know, the, in our sport, we have something called the death to summit ratio. So, you know, like in golf, they have par, right? So, so on Everest, it's about a 3% death to summit ratio. On K2, it's over 30%. So if you're on the most dangerous peak in the world, you want to be there with people that you can trust. Those people, again, that are the people that you know are high-performance people. You know, that they're passionate. They, you know, have an ability to craft and communicate a vision. You know, that they're they're great partners and that they, you know, not just work hard, they work smart. So this, to me, was completely obvious that this was a group of people, excluding the one man who came up with me, Rod Richardson, um, this was a group of people that I could not continue to put myself in danger with. So sadly for the world, Rod, um, well, he left that expedition to go be Hamid Karzai's head of security. So it was the beginning of the whole uh, invasion of Afghanistan. And so um, they then uh, asked him to go to Iraq. And so he was in Iraq and he ran... um, a, a, a basically a gigantic part of the you know the military in, in El Ambar province, and he uh, he lost his life in Iraq. So, oh, that's sad. Yeah. yeah, it was terrible. So we've established. All right, so we've established that K two, and if anybody isn't aware, K two is the second highest mountain in the world, yep. right below Everest. It's only what five or six hundred feet shorter. I think it might 900? be eight hundred feet, but I'm not that smart, so I can't remember the <laughs> statistics like that. <laughs> But like you said, the the, the death to summit ratio. I, I understand there's only been a, around 300 and some people who have summited, and 80 yes. some have died. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at um, Everest, there's now been over 8,000 people on the summit of Everest, and there's been like 300 and like you said, like 300 and change that have reached the summit of K2. And so you, how many times have you attempted K2 and actually I was made a, it? I was a two-time failure, and then on my third attempt, I reached the summit. And on the one that you reached the summit, if I'm not mistaken, you also filmed what ended up becoming an Emmy-nominated documentary? Yeah, and it's actually, um, we'll give, we should show a link in there if you don't mind, back to the website on, you know, where we have those. So we filmed this television show for NBC Sports, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's cool. Like if you want to watch people get the crap kicked out of them, like this is a great movie for that. Because <laughs> it's it literally in the themes that we talked about earlier. This is totally man versus nature, and nature really wants to win desperately in this battle. <laughs> and so we are getting the crap kicked out of us constantly on this peak. And so what? What is it that makes K two so hard? And and like what? What kept? What kept bringing you back when you failed? Well, the, what makes it so hard is so it, like Everest, it's roughly eleven thousand feet from base camp to the summit. So it's the same distance to the top. The only problem is that K two is infinitely steeper. Um, so on Everest, you might um, take out your hands to go climb a ladder or something like that. Like maybe five hundred feet of that eleven thousand feet. 
on K2, you might be able to put your hands in your pocket for 500 out of 11,000. So the other 10,500 feet, you're clawing your way to the top using your hands and feet to get there. So it's infinitely more technical. It's also further to the north, so it actually is a colder mountain and it has worse weather. And so many years, nobody reaches the summit of K2. In fact, it's probably maybe 60% of the of the years that people go to Everett, to K2, that people can get to the top. And it's almost universal that people reach the summit of, of Mount Everest. So, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to have a year where people don't get to the top. So, um, yeah, so you have you know, way worse weather. You have much more technical terrain. You have um, The mountain is, is trying to kill you. Uh, you know, two of my best friends were killed there recently in a gigantic avalanche. They were sleeping in their tent, and the avalanche uh, plucked them and their tent off the side of the mountain and buried them. We've never found their bodies. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's extremely – there's a, a lot of uh, things that combine to make it outrageously uh, dangerous. So uh, is that considered, I mean, is it arguably, of all the mountains that get climbed, is that the hardest mountain to climb? Roughly, I mean, I'm sure there's some that are probably almost unclimbable, but are there, you know... Yeah, yeah, the big popular mountains, I'd say. So there's, you know, there's, with the death to summit ratio, there's peaks like Annapurna that actually have more deaths than to summits than K2. But for the amount of people that go there and the quality of the climber that goes there, you know, uh, I... You know, the failure rate on K2, I think, speaks for itself. And how many, so I know as of a few years ago, you were one of only nine Americans who had summited both Everest and K2. Do you know how many there are now? I think there's 12, which uh, there's actually, you know, there's been 12 Americans that have walked on the moon. So it, it kind of put it in perspective. So, so you're the yeah. Neil Armstrong of uh, mountaineering, is what you're saying? Uh, well, I think there was, uh, the Neil Armstrong would have been... Um, Lou Reichardt, actually. So, okay. yeah, the first oh. one to do that. Yeah, to pull it off. So, yeah. Ah, that's interesting. So, yeah. what are your future plans? I mean, it's probably, how do, you know, it's probably got to be a little difficult to transition back to everyday life when you're in a life and death situation. Um, are you are you comfortable with everything you've done, or do you still have big plans that are coming in the future? Uh, well, just real quick on the transitioning thing. I, I think if you didn't have... If this wasn't a, a regular thing for you, then it would be difficult, right? So people coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, this is their first time they've ever done that transition, so it's it's difficult. I've done that transition hundreds and you know, whatever, maybe two hundred times, so it's not that hard for me at all. In fact, I think one of the benefits that I have as a person is, you know, go back to those you know first three things. I'm, you know, I am a mountaineer, but I also am an entrepreneur, and I also am an educator, and I also am a family man, so, you know, suburban dad, so, you know, you got these different pieces that fill your soul, so I'm not defined by one thing, I, I never want to be defined as a mountaineer, I want to be defined as, you know, a combination of all these things, so, um, so that, that uh, you know, that all helps dramatically, and to tell you the truth, I just lost the track of what was your other part of the question? <laughs> <laughs> I was really about, like, do you have any future plans? Do you, like, oh, yeah, do you have I any got big tons. expeditions? Yeah, I, you know, I'm 54 now, so my days of moving the sport forward are over. Like, I'm not going to do anything that's going to, you know, redefine where the direction of the sport of mountaineering is. So um, I just want to go back and do, there's so many classic climbs that may be hard or they may be easy, but they're just important to the history of the sport. You know, they've captured my imagination a million years ago, and I want to go do that kind of stuff. So I'm hoping to go to Antarctica this winter. You know, there's a whole bunch of other fun stuff like that that I want to do. That sounds great. My wife is a little concerned about my, I have a fascination with Arctic and Antarctic survival stories from the times of exploration. Yep. 
And I've always wanted to travel. And we have a mutual friend, Wendy Chioji, who has traveled to the... She was recently in Antarctica and then went to the Arctic. And I'm, I want to do an expedition. And the good thing about that is it's not, it's not quite as high. And since I have a big fear of heights, it's more... I might have a better chance of actually succeeding in something down there. So, uh, not to give you somebody to compare yourself to, but we had um, a Japanese guy on our expedition to Everest in 2001, and he started um, his year at the North Pole, and he skied to the edge of the ice until he could get in a kayak, and he took a kayak to Canada, and then he took a bicycle to the southern tip of Argentina, and then obviously had to fly across the you know to Antarctica, and then got on skis to the South Pole, and then he came to Everest. So, wow. yeah. yeah, so you could be the next Niyoki. I'll I'll, uh, I'll run that by my wife and see what she says. <laughs> so Don't tell Claire I gave you this idea. Well, and I, yeah, I'm just glad that uh, I'm going to pick on you for a second because I'm, we talked before we started the podcast that we, I spent about three days on the mountain with you in, at Kilimanjaro, and <laughs> I didn't realize this, but at the time you were not aware that we were Jeremy and Claire. You had written us in your little notepad as, as uh, Justin and Carly. <laughs> and if you look if you watch the conquering kilimanjaro documentary that they made about the climb at one point they pan over to your book as you're writing down the blood oxygen levels and it says justin and it says carly so i'm just honored you got my name right now so that's that's good it, 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 I, it required a lot of pain to be able to, <laughs> to move permanently into my memory <laughs> next time you come on we'll talk about lessons as to how people can remember people's first how to remember people's names there you uh, go. All right, let me ask you. I get. I'm gonna give three questions. What's your yep. uh, What's your favorite book other than your own? Uh, so I'm a huge fan of nonfiction, and uh, I'll give the readers a, a great book called "We Die Alone." So if you thought your life was tough, if you thought you were some kind of a you know a badass, read "We Die Alone." And uh, it will redefine what you think difficulty is. Do you, by chance, know who the author is, or do you just look it up? I don't. No, we dial on. You'll find it on Amazon. Oh, good. I need a new book. That sounds great. So, what's the best advice? The single best advice you've ever been given? Uh, it really is: don't reach the peak, but miss the point. And I think it's so easy for us to get distracted by you know goals, whether it's profitability or whatever it happens to be, right? I like that. So the next question, actually, you've kind of answered this before. This is probably just for me, but uh, what's the best way to... So, so people always hear about mountaineering. They want to go to the mountains. They have no idea what that means. You know, what's the best way for them to start? Well, I would really start at my local climbing gym and not trying to sound obnoxious about this, but this is this, this has really become the center of the climbing community. So this is where you're going to meet... You're not only going to get introduced to the basic skills, but you're going to meet your future climbing partners. So I'd go to the local climbing gym. Well, if only we had one. If only we knew somebody that could yes. build one down here. Would... <laughs> All right. Well, this has been great. So where can people learn more about Chris Warner? I would send them to uh, chrisbwarner.com, so B as in boy. Um, I am not on any social media. So I uh, never got started, and I'm, uh, you know, whatever. I'm missing out on all that fun stuff. But if you go on crispywarner.com, the only thing I would say to look for is the videos. Like, go watch the video of, of climbing K2. It's really spectacular. It's yeah. And, and I will, can, I'll give you a plug for that because I have sat down and watched, and, and it, before, but in preparation for this too, I sat down and watched a lot of those videos, and it's amazing that. I don't know how you guys managed to climb and film that at the same time. That was quite an accomplishment, but it's worth—it's definitely worth your time watching. So, 
Um, I think that's it, Chris. I think we better probably wrap it up. But uh, well, thanks, Jeremy, and thanks to the audience for taking their time out to to, to you know whatever hang out with two knuckleheads like us. Yeah, that's nice of them. That's good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, Chris. Thanks again. We'll talk to you again soon.